So far in this series, we've seen the big and the small of the logistics world. From the invisible bits of data and next generation wireless technologies, to the robots and automation systems that keep things moving rapidly along. But there is another aspect of logistics that's bigger than almost anything you can imagine. And it's all around us. Someone once called it the final frontier. And it's a frontier into which we're taking our first tentative steps. Space. In this episode of the DHL Logistics Trend Radar podcast, we go boldly into zero-gravity logistics, explore how interplanetary deliveries are shaping up, and discover how yesterday's science fiction is now becoming a daily reality. This is the brave new world of space logistics. There's a good chance that if you think space, you think of the people who've been exploring it for decades. NASA. Since 1958, they've been pushing the boundaries of space travel and have naturally learned a lot along the way, including how best to move tons of cargo in support of their missions. Dr. Mark Weiss, NASA's logistics manager based at the Kennedy Space Center, admits that in years gone by, the agency's planning was based on a surprisingly simple premise. The best analogy here on Earth is going camping. You know, you're going to go go hiking or go camping with your family. It's You're laying out that backpack and trying to think of all the things you need to keep you alive, to keep you safe, to give you shelter, and packing all that on the single trip and taking it with you. Since its early pioneering days, space travel has obviously become more complex, with a greater number of missions undertaken with bigger rockets carrying more technologically advanced payloads. The result is that we now have manned space stations and thousands of satellites orbiting our planet, and the number is only increasing. For DHL, this growth in complexity and frequency has meant that space is fast developing into another area of the logistics business. And part of the reason is that it's no longer a game just for the world's wealthiest governments. Justin Baird, Vice President and Head of Innovation at DHL Customer Solutions and Innovation, explains. If we think about the space program, of course, we think about NASA, but actually there's now over 50 nations around the world that have a national space program. Um, and when we think about that, where it's, it's not just like, you know, one or two players, you know, lots of times people think of NASA, they think of SpaceX, but now there's even, uh, you know, over a dozen new companies that are significant new players in this area of manufacturing and the launch of these complete vehicles, you know, getting things to space. Right. And there's actually thousands of companies that are supplying the parts, the engineering. So, um, I mean, it, you can almost think of, the number of activities that are happening across these countries is actually that many activities literally happening in the United States alone. You know, there's now commercial companies that are launching spacecraft from Texas, from Washington, from California. So it's not just a, a few companies that are making this uh, mission to space be a reality. It's actually a lot of different areas that are happening. So I think, you know, they talk about how the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And then all of a sudden something happens and it's like, oh, wow, there's a space <laughs> industry. Well, that's what's happening right now. For NASA, the changing nature of the space race has also meant a different way of looking at things. It wasn't until we put the space station in orbit and about 20 years ago started a continuous human presence in low Earth orbit that we had to start thinking about a logistics supply chain and constantly supplying the crew that was alive on orbit 24-7, 365 days a year. And 
we've traditionally looked at doing these really, really challenging missions and never had to worry as much about the business case. It was more about just making sure we throw every resource at a problem, prepare for all these ultimate things that could fail, and really try to make sure it's successful. And now as we transition into a, a commercial type environment, a commercial type thought process and world, and businesses see a business case with space, it, it's starting to completely change the way we think and prepare for missions. I'm, I'm interested in the supply lines and how you plan and manage those, because in, in the LTR, we're talking about 128 million pieces, which are all smaller than one by one centimeter, and a million pieces larger than one centimeter. These are all going to be traveling at incredible speeds um, through dangerous places. Can you walk us through practically how all of that works? Yeah, so, you know, again, thinking of Space Station, which is getting supplied today, a manifest gets built. You know, let's let's look at the schedule and the operations for what a crew will do during a six-month stay. Mm-hmm. How, much, how much supplies do they need? How much consumables? How much utilization, how much science experiments are we going to be able to actually get them to do and perform during that time period? And what items to make that space station run to failure during that time period? Build a manifest and build out the list of all the hundreds of things we need to fly and then start to back up again from a, an annual cadence and look at what are the right ways we got to pull all that stuff together and what actually flies on that mission. You know, today, Flying up to space station, a couple thousand kilograms of supplies, mm-hmm. you know, that we send up and it's finding the right balance of getting everything we need there and then making sure all that turns over once we get those supplies up there. The story of space logistics is about more than simply getting things up there. In some instances, there are things that have to return. And then there's a need to get rid of a lot of those bits of broken technology and general trash. Here's Mark again, mentioning a few ways that NASA handles goods that need to leave the International Space Station. Currently, the SpaceX supplies with the Dragon capsule and then Northrop Grumman supplies with a Cygnus capsule. And they're both two different systems. Dragon can, can return to Earth, which is high value science that we want to return. That'll land in the ocean and we'll go retrieve it. And then Cygnus is not designed to return to Earth. So there's a there's a planning that has to happen on orbit for those different vehicles that come in. Some are which are the things we need to send home, and then which are the things that are just gonna go, we're gonna go put it on a an orbit around the sun that's eventually gonna burn up, or we'll send it back into the Earth's atmosphere to burn up and, and we won't get it back. While scientists, governments, and private companies are all getting better at working out what to pack as part of their logistics plans. Space presents a special set of conditions that require careful planning when it comes to how to pack it. For NASA's Artemis project, there are a few more challenges than usual, because it's not just about getting into orbit, it's about returning to the moon, with plans to be on the lunar surface in 2024. Mark explains how NASA's thinking extends to what types of materials are best suited to this long-awaited return journey, and why. So, you know, we all, I think, relate the most to, to aluminum alloys, very lightweight metal alloys. Obviously, weight is central. I mean, right now, mass is king and, and launching and, and escaping Earth's gravity is the, the biggest hurdle we have to overcome and try to find ways to do that as cheap as, a, as possible. Mm-hmm. We need things that are very strong, the loads and the environment that it goes through, the vibration, the dynamics just on the ride uphill are very strong. So we, you want to stick with metals. 
but obviously heavy, you know, so, so composite materials come in a lot of times too. And then the other, the other piece to worry about is the, you know, there's certain materials off gas, certain materials change when you expose them to a vacuum or when the radiation hits them, the radiation doses are, you know, a year, a year exposure on earth is probably a couple days when we're out at the moon. Wow. So that radiation changes, you know, how things behave. So that is one of the biggest hurdles we have to overcome now going out to the moon with our Artemis program, you know, as we're, we're going to move beyond and now take what we've learned living in low earth orbit and extend out to an even harsher environment. The temperatures, you know, when you're in the shade, it's, it's almost, you know, negative 500 degrees Fahrenheit, wow. you know, like super, super cold. And then when you get to the sun, it's, it's going to flip to the other extreme, you know, like hundreds of degrees on the other side, wow. uh, you know, so the, the ability to withstand such a quick change, I mean, we'll, we'll constantly be turning spacecraft using simple things like making one side black and one side white to heat it up and to dissipate the heat quickly and try to make sure you can try to find a, an equilibrium for the spacecraft. The Artemis project isn't just about exploring the moon more extensively than ever. It's also about preparing the next giant leap, landing humans on Mars. That requires a whole new level of logistics, and for DHL, making sure the right supplies are on hand for space missions of that magnitude is a challenge that they're willing to take up. Justin explains. When you think about the space supply chain, there's a many, many different aspects to that. You know, we've talked about how you get things into space, of course, but then how to manufacture those things in space. So one thing that we're doing currently is taking satellites and helping move those satellites to the launch pad. But, you know, when you think about the next stage, the next stage is the payload doesn't necessarily need to be a fully assembled satellite. Right. As an example, we could be setting up parts. We could be sending up uh, components. We could be sending up experiments that are happening. And by being able to help support that, it means that manufacturing space is going to be this kind of next generation as we know it. Um, we look at also what happens when we're taking things from the Earth side of things those materials getting into the Earth's orbit, and then how we move from the orbit to the planet orbit, so or the moon orbit in this case. So there's all the different things that happen across that. The designing, the manufacturing, the assembly, the launch, um, when we look at the deployment of these materials in space and how all those things will come together. So we see a really interesting opportunity there. It's really just a burgeoning space, but already there's literally um, dozens upon dozens of companies that are starting to operate in this space. And um, what they actually call that is new space, right? So yeah. a new space startup. It's yeah. amazing. What about a fulfillment center or a warehouse in space? I mean, is that something that you guys have at least played around with idea-wise? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, in reality, that's what's happening with the number of those modules that are going up with, um, with NASA and Artemis right now. Um, they're basically building a fulfillment center in space. You know, the Artemis hmm. Gateway will be that fulfillment center. For DHL, you know, certainly our focus is in the terrestrial locations right now. Right. But there are different interesting agencies or startups that are working in this space where they're looking at creating full turnkey missions to make that possible. So I definitely think that we're going to see a commercial opportunity happening in space. Again, as Mark was saying, by the time we have humans going to Mars, we're going to have business in space as well. Perseverance is going about one kilometer per second at an altitude of about 16 kilometers from the surface of Mars. We are starting the straighten up and fly right maneuver to roll over to give the radar a better look at the ground. Heat shield has been separated. This allows 
both the radar and the cameras to get their first look at the surface. Perseverance is continuing to descend on the parachute. Our current velocity is about 90 meters per second at an altitude of 4.2 kilometers, 20 meters off the surface. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. NASA's success with the landing of the Perseverance rover on Mars was a magnificent feat of engineering and a milestone for humanity. But the ultimate goal is to land humans on Mars. And, as Mark explains, the future of space logistics will play a major role in achieving that goal. We have a lot of experience now going to Mars with robotic exploration. We've been growing these rovers from something that maybe a kid would play with today, you know, a remote control car <laughs> that maybe we had growing up. That was the late 90s, where this current Perseverance rover is the size of a Mini Cooper. I mean, that's, that's how big that vehicle is that we just landed on Mars. We launched it, took about nine months in transit to get all the way out to, to kind of catch Mars. It's like throwing a football, you know, like they have to hit at the right time. It, it finally descends to the surface and, and we have this amazing rover on Mars, but it's robotic and it'll survive. Hopefully, you know, 10 years, if we're lucky, this thing will keep exploring. But when we switch and move to, to putting humans on the surface, we have to, again, if you think about someone sending one of us to an extreme remote environment to go camp for even a week, and we all watch Survivor, and we watch some of these different shows and see how, <laughs> how crazy that is, we have to think ahead and pre-plan all the supplies the crew will need. So to do a human exploration to Mars, we'd have to send the supplies, have, have logistics depots in orbit that we yeah. can make sure we're continually supplying, have a capability to get the crew in the situation of an emergency, probably up to an orbital location where we have extra supplies to be able to send them back. Today, we're looking at a three-year round-trip mission, probably nine months to send a crew there. You'd stay on planet or in orbit of Mars for about 18 months and then another nine months to get back because we have to wait for the planets to align before we can do that trip home to make yeah. it as short as possible. Otherwise, those distances are even more extreme and exponentially yes. so. So, yes. Mark, in your view, how do you see space exploration as a whole changing in the next few years? You know, we hear people talking about how much money is going to be made available from both private and public sector sources, how humanity needs to make these strides. We've got very famous and wealthy people who are involving themselves in this in this new venture. And I, it's an exciting time to be in this world. But I'm curious about what you think is actually attainable. And then... If you feel like being a little adventurous, what would you say you hope would be attainable? It, you, you hit it exactly right where you say it's an extremely exciting time. I, I started my career and always heard us all dream about going back to the moon and going to Mars. But we were in the middle of the shuttle program. We were starting to, to build out the space station. It always felt like it was, it was 40 years away. It felt like it was just really going to be really hard to get there. And we are at the point now, and I, and I really, the technology advancements have been tremendous, where I believe in, the, in this next decade, we are going back to the moon. We have the technology. We're going to learn to live off the moon, which will enable us to no doubt be able to take a shot at sending humans to Mars 
probably late in the 2030s. Amazing. So it's close. And that's all possible because it's, it's now businesses are starting to see a, a potential business case from space. I mean, we can all relate to GPS on our phone and, yeah. and, and data. Right. And, and the mega satellite constellations that are going to start to cover around Earth and give us internet access while you're sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, something we couldn't imagine. The, the ways to make money in orbit is going to start to enable all these commercial industries, these billionaires to, to throw and back the investment. Just like when we look back at, you know, the British colonizing the world and, and setting up spice trade routes and, right. and you know, people moving west to, to go for gold in, in America. We're, we're at that point. So I'm confident we're, we're sending humans this decade. And because we have such a, a ball of momentum and the ability to see, you know, moving industries off planet, protecting our planet here by doing more things in space and understanding how to take care of our own resources, really believe we can take a shot at sending humans late in the 2030s to Mars. For Justin, the future of space logistics and human life in space is less about looking to the stars and more about the Earth itself. One of the things that I always think about when we think of the kind of space logistics aspect is lots of people do think about space being an opportunity to, let's say, re-energize or repair the planet, right? So mm -hmm. we talk about the things that we've done to damage the planet. You know, you look at the things like heavy industry. One of the potential opportunities there is that a lot of heavy industry could actually be uh, zoned in different locations. In other words, the Earth could be zoned for residential and light industrial use, and areas outside of the um, wow. planet would be used for more of the heavy industrial. And I think that that's a really important hmm. um, part to think of if you think about how even lower gravity, and as Mark had talked about, you know, some materials are very different in space. And there's actually now companies that are doing this uh, let's say zero gravity or microgravity manufacturing. It's all just no. starting to happen. So I think a lot of things we'll see will happen in that kind of making Earth a better place uh, in the future and, and helping to, I guess, perhaps save humanity in this, at the same time. Next time you're marveling at a viral video of the Dragon rocket landing back on Earth, remember this. All the incredible science and technology used by humankind to explore space is just one part of the story. There is an extremely complex and advanced logistics network allowing us to venture into and survive space, and it's helping to pave the way to Mars and beyond. This has been another episode of the DHL Logistics Trend Radar podcast. Our thanks to Dr. Mark Weiss and DHL's Justin Baird. Audio of the Perseverance rover Mars landing is courtesy of NASA and JPL Caltech. In our next episode, we take a look at how drones and self-driving vehicles will become a mainstay in logistics and in our lives. The Logistics Trend Radar podcast is presented by me, Gareth Cliff, written, recorded and produced by Spike Ballantyne and is a product of DHL in association with Cliff Central in Johannesburg, South Africa.